tabernacle. Who's so, who is just thrilled and excited about learning about the tabernacle today? Oh, okay, one person. Yay! Let me tell you this. Let me, let me look into your eyes because I see you. You know I see you. You are here for a reason. These words in Hebrews 9 are here for a reason and they're here for you. I struggled this week with some of the, the details and some of the content and I thought, Lord, I don't even know. Why are you telling me all this? And so before we even start, I want you to realize, just give me, you know, 40 minutes of, of your mind and your heart and trust that there's a reason that you are here for this particular talk. There's a reason that you are here for chapter 9 of Hebrews. And I'll give you a little hint. It's because he needs to tell you something about who he is through this chapter. It ain't about a table and it ain't about a cherubim and all these things we're going to talk about. It's about who he is. So trust me, okay? Let me pray and we'll get started. Father, you love us so much. You love us. You love us so much. And so many of us, all of us, but especially those of us today who are carrying in heavy, heavy, giant things into the Holy of Holies to meet you, God. We are broken, and we need you, and we need to know who you are. Lord, today we pray that through this chapter that we walk out of here with something we didn't expect, that we walk out of here with a bigger peace, a bigger understanding of who you are and why you love us. And so, God, will you show us yourself today? Will you be um, present in chapter 9 of Hebrews, God. Thank you for the chapter. Thank you for this book, for this author. And above all, thank you for your son who came to live and die for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, open up your Bibles to chapter 9 of Hebrews. Chapter 9. Lots of, lots of good, interesting, nerdy information this week. Has anybody ever studied, like done a study of, of the tabernacle before? Anybody? Yeah, a couple people. Oh gosh, that's super cool. Okay, you still have to listen. It's like a thing. <laughs> Can't ignore me, even if you know all this. Um, listen, this week it was there was a lot of um, specifics and a lot of of taking us back, right, back to this uh, covenant that we know th that God came and said there's a new covenant that's going to take over and take care of what man and his weakness couldn't accomplish through the old covenant, right? Remember that? We know that we're going to hear a lot about that. And, and I say it, I use that RTA, right? Remember the audience. And so for those of you who haven't been with us the whole time, we always want to go back to who wrote it, why they wrote it, who they were talking to, and then who we are as we are listening to it, okay? And so these folks, these Hebrews that are listening have this deep, deep, deep history. Um, this history that we've seen reflected, right? In the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about angels and we talked about Moses and we talked about, um, can you believe we've been doing this? We've been talking about angels. We've been talking about Moses. We've been talking about high priests and covenants. Like, do you guys walk around Target and go, hey guys, you wanna know anything about high priests? I, I'm your person. You know things that most people don't know, that study their Bible forever and they don't know. But the point is, he is going over all these things that these Hebrews have like in their bones. They know this stuff. This whole tabernacle thing, it's very interesting, even though it felt like it was a lot of detail. Did you know that the author doesn't actually give a lot of detail about it? Because did you know, this, is, this will blow your mind a little bit. There are 50 chapters in God's word about tabernacle. 
50. Do you hear that? How many, how many chapters are there about the creation of everything? Two. Take, just take just a minute and wrap your brain around that. There's two chapters on creation. There's 50 on the tabernacle. There's something that we're supposed to get from this. It's not about the table. It's not about the gold. It's not about the measurements. It's about something God wants to tell us about who he is. And so even though the author of Hebrews doesn't go into a lot of detail, we're going to go into it a little deeper than he does. So here's how today's going to look. Chapter 9 of Hebrews. We're going to talk about the earthly dwelling place, and that's that tabernacle that I was just talking about. That's what that is, that physical, um, the copy, the shadow, right, that we heard those words that are pointing toward what's to come or what's in heaven. We're going to also talk about, secondly, the heavenly dwelling place, and that's where Jesus is on the scene. And that's where we start talking about... um, Jesus in chapter, I mean, excuse me, in verse 11 and following in chapter 9. And so we're going to talk about earthly dwelling place, heavenly dwelling place. And then the last thing that we're going to, we're going to camp on for a little bit is what I felt like um, I needed to hear this week. And it's, what do we learn about God from this? What do we learn about God? Because remember, we're not just studying this like a history book, right, guys? We're trying to get this thing soaked down into our bones and help us understand who God is, what he wants us to know about who he is, and then in turn what it means to us. So the first thing we're going to talk about is verses 1 through 10, and that's the earthly dwelling place. So open your Bible if you haven't already. I mentioned before that creation is only covered in two chapters, and, and the tabernacle is covered in how many? Y'all were listening. Yay, good job. 50, that's right. The Hebrews author goes very brief with all of this, and it's because he knew his audience. RTA, remember the audience. He knew they were very familiar with all the details of tabernacle, okay? Now, verse 1 starts us out and gets us set right. I'm not going to read through every verse, but I am going to walk us through some details about when, why, what the tabernacle is, just so you have an understanding as we keep going. The ver- verse 1 goes like this. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, And verse 2 goes on to say, for a tent was prepared, the first section, and then he goes into the details. And so here, this is what he's talking about, that physical, the physical place called tabernacle. So we're going to pause on Hebrews, and we're going to go back, and we're going to talk a little bit about what that that thing is, what that even is. You've heard that word before, I'm sure. Um, Let's start with when. When did this whole tabernacle thing come on the scene? Okay, so... It was, remember back when we had, um, we had the Hebrews being delivered out of slavery, out of Egypt, remember? And remember there was this event, huh, so weird, we're about to go into that. There was this event that occurred, and it was where they took the blood and they put it on the doorpost, right? And that was during the plagues, and so God's, the Spirit had passed over those homes, right, and saved those folks. Okay, so Passover was like this big deal, to them, okay? Because that was this remembrance of God saving them and loving them that much. And so when this is happening, when the tabernacle comes on the scene, is almost exactly a year after the Passover. It's exactly, and I say almost exactly, it's roughly a year after they have been released from that captivity through the Passover, then through being led out, right? And so now we're at about circa 1450 BC is when this is happening. Okay, that's when this is happening. Why did it even happen? 
So the way the whole tabernacle thing went down is, remember how we talked about Moses and we talked about how he went up and he was like talking to God and everything and he'd come back down and go, hey guys, listen. And then the people would be messing up, okay? So this is one of the things that was happening. God, this is what's so crazy, beautiful, unbelievable about this whole tabernacle thing. Do you realize it was completely designed by God? Like, what? This was not one of those things where man kind of took off and went crazy. This was completely designed and orchestrated and planned out by God. There was a plan, okay? And so what he did then is he communicated that plan to Moses and said, all right, here's the thing. You guys are gonna be wandering for a while, so here's what has to happen. We need a place for me to dwell. And so this is why. They're gonna wander for 40 years in the wilderness. So let's just get practical for a minute. So this, this dwelling place of God, what does it need to be? It needs to be portable, doesn't it? It needs to be something that they can, a structure that they can pack up and move because they're moving all the time. And if you'll remember, if you go back and read all about this, the way they moved was who was leading them? God. There was like this cloud and then there was like, there's all these ways that he would lead them. And so all of a sudden he'd give them an indicator like, okay, guys, time to move again. And then they would pack everything up and roll up the tent and take off. Okay. This is all Chris words. This is not, it's a little different than the ESV, but Needless to say. So it needed to be this portable place that they could take with them as they wandered. The other thing, let's put that first image up there, Jess. The other thing that it needed is it needed to be um, the center of everything. So remember, whenever they are, y'all like the look? That's so cute. I'll have to post that online so people can see it. But, but I needed this visual because I needed to understand like, okay, so the tabernacle was the center of everything. So they're traveling around. All the tribes have their different little camps, right? But they're camping. And so what is at the center of everything? It's God. It's this dwelling place of God. And so the 12 tribes would camp around it. This is how it would look. It would be right in the middle. And it would be time to move again. We'd pack it all up and we'd do the whole thing again. 40 years, guys. How many years? 40, that's like a long time. I'm almost 40 now. Almost. Don't laugh. Don't laugh. So we know when. We know why. What? What is this tabernacle thing besides a tent in the middle of town? Here's what it is. The word tabernacle in Hebrew is the word mishkan, and that means resident or dwelling place. Sometimes you'll hear tabernacle used like as a verb. You know, sometimes people say, oh, he tabernacled among us. And Jesus is the one who came. And John 1.14, we'll talk about that in a little bit. He came and he tabernacled. What did that mean? He dwelt among us. When you hear that word tabernacle, don't just rule it out like some big churchy word. Think about it. It's a dwelling. Okay? There's a few things I want you to know about what it was specifically. And this is where I got real nerded out. So it's just so cool. So just hang with me and listen. Here's the first thing it was. It was magnificent. It's hard to imagine because it feels, you want to show the next, oh no, not yet. Don't show it yet. I'm sorry. Here's the thing. It, it, it looks like a tent with a fence, didn't it? I was looking at it like magnificent. I don't really get that. Here's why it was so magnificent. Let me read this quote. It says, this says it very well. This was in, um, well, it was one of the commentaries I read and it said this. According to calculations done, you know, because back in um, when this was all specified, back in Exodus, just so you know, Exodus 25 through 31, there's all these specifications from God about what this tabernacle is going to be, okay? Then there was a timeout 
for like chapters 32 through 34 because people messed up again and they did this whole golden calf thing and God had to go time out on the tabernacle, let's deal with the people and then we go back to the tabernacle thing. And so like chapters 35 through 40, we're back to the specifications of what's inside of that tent, okay? But this is where, this quote I read um, tells us a little bit about it because there's very specific measurements and very specific um, 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 the, the way they make things and, and the, the products that they're using to create things and the artistry behind it all, okay? It's all very specific if you go back and read in Exodus. And so this quote says this. I thought this was really cool. According to the calculations about um, how, mu- how many shekels were used to try to find and the pounds of gold and all that kind of thing, it says this, the calculations, there would be some 1,900 pounds of gold 6,400 pounds of silver and 4,500 pounds of bronze used when we're creating this amazing thing that we're going to talk about in detail. This project involved not only very expensive materials, but these materials were fashioned in such a way as to create great works of art. God commanded Moses to fashion a tabernacle in a way which would involve almost every form of representational art that men had ever known. And the tabernacle and its furnishings were provided for the Israelites for both glory and beauty. Guys, this wasn't just God going, all right, everybody, go. we're going to get 25 two-by-fours. We're going to get a tent. We're going to roll it out. This was God going, hey, guys. You know how you love art and you know how you love beauty and you know how you appreciate the the beauty of nature and all these beautiful things. I love you and understand art so much more than you ever could that this thing is going to be just the most unbelievable display of that. And you know what else I'm going to do? I'm going to use every one of you to help put it together. You heard about all the weights and all the measurements and all that. Guys, that that wasn't five guys that set and, and, and created this thing. This was God telling his people, this is you together, working together to create this place is where I'm going to dwell. This was important. It was magnificent. The second thing about it, and you can show that next image, Jess. The second thing was that it was functional. It was functional. If you haven't studied the tabernacle before, you might have been reading about some of that stuff and going, okay, I totally don't get it. I don't really, why does that even matter? I'm going to do my best to try to kind of give you a short version, a short explanation, a non-50 chapters explanation of what this thing looked like. Look, within the fencing kind of look that we saw before that sat in the middle of the city, there was this tent. And if you can see in this image, what's happened is we've peeled back the lid of the tent, okay? You can see up there, that's kind of how it looks. I'm going to walk through kind of what's outside, and then we'll, we'll move into what's on the inside. So on the outside, there's this courtyard, if you will. Um, all the Israelites could go there. That was a place that anybody could go. There was no restrictions. There was a bronze altar that sat in front of it. So before you actually go into the tent, which is the holy place and the most holy place, there was this altar, and that's where animal sacrifices were um, prepared and happened. Okay. Then there was a basin, Okay, because they had to wash. The priests had to wash after they do the animal. There was all these rituals. And again, if you go back to Exodus, there's very specific details about how you wash, how you sacrifice, where you go, what you wear, what you do. Very specific. Hebrews would have known this. The holy place then is the first entrance in to this tent that's in the middle. Okay, And, And we looked at that a little bit in our homework, right? It's kind of the bigger place. 
And within that holy place, there's a couple of things that are in there. And remember, these were all things specified specifically. Specifically, God got so detailed about what he wanted placed in there. And so in this holy place, there's a lampstand, there's a table with 12 loaves, and there's an altar of incense that's right basically before the curtain as you enter into the holy of holies or the most holy place. The lampstand, it's often something I want to say about all this. Okay, all these things were, were not only literal, they were also very symbolic. Okay, in fact, um, the, the, the translation of that word symbolic is actually parable. It actually means like there's this, there's this literary parable, this picture that we're getting of what's to come. And we know that that's Jesus. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And so as you hear about these things, realize they were specific and they were real, but they were also an indicator, a pointing toward what was coming. And that was Jesus. And so you, the lampstand, Jesus came and he was the light of the what? world. He was the light of the world. The table with the 12 loaves, they represented the 12 tribes that were all represented already from handed down from, remember the Levites were Aaron and Moses were in the Levite tribe. Remember the 12 tribes represented the 12 sons of Jacob. The altar of incense represents the prayers of the saints. Prayers of the saints. Think about incense for a minute. There, that's like a, it's like a fragrant smoke, right, that rises. And this had a lot of different purposes. As we learn, if you go dig deep and kind of look, it, it had a lot of different purposes. One was that it was supposed to shield um, the, the, the image of the Lord because the priest wasn't even, couldn't even take it in because God is so holy. But it also was fragrant, almost like we hear about um, in, in Revelation, we hear about our prayers... <sighs> Are like they're like in a bowl at the throne, and he hears everyone like fragrant incense, every prayer. And so that's what those incense were. They represented that. The next thing that comes as you move past is there's this big curtain. We talked a little bit about that a few weeks ago. The curtain, guys, was not just like a shower curtain. It wasn't that. It was big, thick, heavy constructed. It was a partition. It was immovable in a lot of ways because the only, the only person that could go beyond the curtain that could pass through the incense was the high priest. That was it. And so now we enter into this place where only one could go into the Holy of Holies or the most holy place as some of our Bibles say. Past that thick curtain is the Holy of Holies. Only the priest could enter and he could only enter once a year. Once a year. And that's because that's when he would be doing the once a year sacrifice for atonement. Remember we talked in our homework. That was on the day of atonement. There's a one day thing. Our group, it was kind of interesting. We were all talking about like, isn't it crazy? Like there's 365 days. And so you have this one day that the priest does his thing. And he goes in there and he does all that. And then he comes back out and is like, oh man, here we go again. We're starting over. 364 days of mess. And we all wait for that one day to come again. Not anymore, right? And so the priest would then go into the holy place once a year. He had special way to wash. He had special clothing. Smoke covered his eyes, like I mentioned before. He um, also had to have that blood. Remember we talked about the blood that was sprinkling because blood is what? Blood is life, right? And the only way to approach God was through the sacrifice of blood. 
And so he was in charge of all that. So within the Holy of Holies, this is what was, this is what was happening inside there. You can kind of see there's like this weird box thing and it's got these weird sticks on it and it's got these funky creatures with wings and they don't do the robot, they just have wings. But here's what that is, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to give you the quick version. Here's what the Ark of the Covenant is. On top of it, it has the wings of these two angelic creatures, and they're called cherubim. And you know where we've seen them before? In the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden. That's where they were before. The thing that's awful, Genesis 3.24, if you want a reference. The thing about those, those um, angelic beings is they are associated with the banishment. The banishment of the Garden of Eden. Remember whenever sin fell on man and then they weren't allowed back in? Heartbreaking, right? That's what we have represented here on the Ark of the Covenant. The other thing is on top of it, there's this, um, the top and it's got, oh, it's real ornate and, and crazy and golden, all, this, all of these things. And it's called the mercy seat. And what the mercy seat is, it's where the actual offering was brought and laid. It was a symbolic transfer of sin to the mercy seat, okay? Being looked over by these cherubim who are watching. It was a process. This whole atonement for sin thing was a process. The Ark of the Covenant was there. Also, three things. three things within the Ark of the Covenant that were contained that had very important meaning. And and really, you read this, and sometimes if you haven't studied your Bible a lot, you're like, okay, whatever, I don't even care. Let me tell you why you care, okay? There's three things that were contained that symbolized God's problem with man. God's problem with man. The first thing was this. There was manna. There was a collection of manna that was included in there. You know what manna was? Remember back when our, when our guys, back when our guys were wandering in the desert, right? And God was providing for them, wasn't he? And he provided for them because he rained down manna from heaven. And we won't go into their attitude about that. They were starving. And they were grateful for like a hot minute. And then they weren't, Right? And then they wanted a hoard, or then they wanted something that tasted better. I don't like my life. I don't like, you're providing for me? I don't, I mean, it's not really my thing. I didn't pick that flavor. I am gluten-free. I cannot eat that. <laughs> Sorry, Mary. <laughs> just kidding. So just joking. But you know what I mean? It was like that's what was happening is these people, not that they were gluten-free, um, but rather that they were not satisfied with what God was offering. They rejected God's provision. Manna is representing our rejection of God's provision. The other item that was located there in the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's staff. Aaron's staff. And so if you go back and read about Aaron, remember he was our first priest in the Levite priesthood. And the reason why his staff was so significant is it, was, it had buds. Like, like um, you know, flower buds. And what was interesting when you look at the history of that, there was a time when God said, this is how this thing's going to go down, guys. Every family is going to have, for the head of the family, they're going to have a staff. And that staff is going to be kind of what they carry in when we have these big powwows and stuff. Well, Aaron's, Aaron's um, staff was right there. And it was, it was when God let that staff bud and actually produced almonds, which, what the heck, who knew? That was an indication to God that this is, who, this is who life will come through. Life will come through Aaron. 
This line is going to be the priesthood. This represents who is going to be the go-between, the mediator between me and man in the Old Covenant. Okay, so that's what that staff represents. So what's interesting about that staff being included, remember I mentioned these symbolize God's problems with man. Aaron's staff represents rebellion of God's leadership. He had a plan. He had a plan. Our weakness ruined the plan. That staff represents rebellion of God's leadership. The third thing that's contained within the Ark the Ark of the Covenant is this. It's the stone tablets that the law was written on. Remember that? We've all seen the movie, you know, when Moses comes down, he's got the, okay. So here's what's crazy about that. So they're contained at this time when it's the tabernacle. We won't even go into the temple and all that right now, but they're there. And so what that is representing is disobedience to God's law. Disobedience to God's law. Remember, The Hebrews would know all of this. They would know the why of it. They would know the history. They would know the disobedience, the rejection, the rebellion, because that's where they come from. So this makes sense to them. The last thing to note about the tabernacle is this, is it was eventually replaced. And I don't just mean by the new covenant, by Jesus. I mean by a temple. And let me explain that a little bit. What comes later? Remember, they're wandering, so they need this temporary, packable thing, right? They need this tabernacle that they're going to carry, and they have this procedure about how they're going to move with this thing, okay? But that was never God's intention. You know, that was never what he intended for, for forever. So what was interesting, in 960 B.C.-ish, 960 B.C., Um, Once Israel actually had a homeland again, they possessed the land of Canaan. David was the king. And David said, hey, God, so um, he actually says it like this. Let me not say it in Chris' voice. In 1 Chronicles 17, 1, he says this, Behold, I am dwelling in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under curtains. He was burdened by the fact that we now, we the Israelites, we the Hebrews, we now have a place. We now actually have a promised land that we're in, and God's still living in a tent. And that ain't right. And so how many times do you guys have a plan that's a really good plan for God, and you're like, hey, God, you just relax. You sit down, take a break. I got this. That's what David was doing. It sounds good. I'm not kidding you. When I hear this, I'm thinking, oh, gosh, this is me. (laughs) This is me. It sounds like a good plan. Get God out of the tent, build him something pretty cool. He'll love that, right? Well, In 960 BC, once Israel was in Canaan, David wanted to build the temple, but um, because David and Nathan, who was a prophet at the time, they were actually disobedient because they were kind of doing their own thing. It was kind of their own plan, and God was like, yeah, I appreciate the intent here, but you're not going to be the one that gets the honor of building this. And David missed out on the privilege and honor of building a temple for the Lord. And his son Solomon was later the one who actually made that happen. And, and so you look at that and you think, oh, it was replaced. But there was a lot of disobedience that happened along the way. Even in trying to please God. Even in thinking, I got, I'm getting you out of the tent. There's still disobedience. Because they're just guys. Right? Well, lots of disobedience. And then later, just so that you know, the temple was erected. And it was actually destroyed twice. It was actually destroyed twice. But then, but then, there came a new dwelling place. 
And that's the second part of this chapter nine. And it's verses 11 through 28. And we learn then about the heavenly dwelling place. We learn about the heavenly dwelling place. Now, I'm not gonna read it. I'm not gonna go into a bunch of detail. You've studied it. You know this, but here's what we have to walk out of here understanding. We must know this. The, let, me, let me read what the message says in verse 11 because I thought this was just such a great sum up. Verse 11 says this, but when the Messiah arrived, high priest of the superior things of this new covenant, he bypassed the old tent and trappings in this created world and went straight to heaven's tent, the true holy place once and for all. See, that tent, that, that earthly thing that was so cool and so expensive and magnificent and functional and all these things was just barely even just a whisper of what was coming. You know, I thought about this though. I was talking to a couple friends of mine and you know what was humbling? As much detail and as much care and as much um, attention and intentionality and love that went into giving direction for the tent, can you even imagine what heaven is like? Can you even imagine? We can't. The heavenly dwelling place is what, is, is, is what this whole thing was modeled after. And so that's where Jesus is now. So Jesus brings in the new covenant. We talked about that, right? The only new covenant that came because he sacrificed and died only one time, not once a year behind a curtain and all those things. One time, once and for all, for every one of us. And it's done. And now he sits at the right hand of God because it is finished. John 1, 14 says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among the people. That's us. All of a sudden, that curtain that kept everybody out that was real big and there was incense and everybody was freaked out because the priest had to put on this robe and it had bells and oh, and there was this thing they tied around his foot and it gets real weird. Go back and read about it, it's great. Doesn't even matter anymore because Jesus came one time. Listen, the tent, there was, a, there was a plan, right? There was a place, this tent thing. And there was a priest who had a job. But let me get you thinking this way. Jesus is the plan, Jesus is the place, and Jesus is the priest. All of that no longer necessary. He's trying to get through to his audience. He's trying to get through to us. In verses 24 through 28, I'm going to read these out loud, and I want you to listen for something. There's three tenses here that are used when we're talking about Jesus, and we're talking about the heavenly dwelling place and the salvation that comes through Jesus. And I want you to listen for the word appears, okay? Three different ways we hear this word here. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, like the tent, which are copies of the true things, the tent, copy, right? But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared, second one, once for all at the end of the ages. And to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27. And just as, appointed, just as it is appointed for man to die once. And after that <clears throat> comes judgment. 
So Christ, having been offered once to bear sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's us. We're eagerly waiting. Three different kinds of appears. Verses 23 through 24, he appears at the throne right now on your behalf. Every person in this room, you need to hear that. He's sitting at the throne right now on your behalf. Period. The second is has appeared. Verse 26, once and for all, it's done and it's finished. We talked in our group, I'm sure you did too, that that whole tent thing, the whole you know, tabernacle, it was like this repetitive thing that had to happen. It was a continual thing that had to occur. Not with Jesus. He has appeared. It is done. And thirdly, verse 28, he shall appear. Listen, he's coming back. He's not coming back to deal with sin because that's done, okay? He did that, that is all done. He's coming back to save his own. He's coming back to take us home. He appears, he has appeared, he shall appear. Listen, the earthly tabernacle was this, it was a copy, it was inaccessible to regular folks like us. And it was temporary and it was external. It was a series of to-do lists that they had to do over and over and over and over. Why over and over? Because there was never satisfaction. It was never done. The heavenly tabernacle is true and real and once. All can enter in, every one of us. You don't have to be a priest. You don't have to go through a priest. We're all on even footing. Every one of us walks behind the curtain if we know Jesus. Every one of us. Doesn't matter what you did. Doesn't matter who you cut off on the way here. Doesn't matter who you're going to cut off when we leave. Don't, please don't cut me off. We're all on even ground. We all have torn down that curtain. We have access to the Holy of Holies. It's final and complete. It was a one-time deal. And lastly, it's internal. It's internal. Jesus is the plan, the place, and the priest. You know, we, we heard a little bit in here about conscience, didn't we? We heard a little bit about um, how that internal thing, we get this conscience. And, you know, it was, it was interesting as I was thinking through this, I thought, wow, you know, that, that's interesting. That tells me a little bit about who God is. Tells me a little bit about this stuff matters because it tells me who my God is and what he has for me to understand. That's kind of what I felt like we needed to finish with today. What do we learn about God through the tabernacle, through chapter 9 of Hebrews? Sounds like a reach, not a reach. Here's the thing. When I sat down, started thinking through this, I thought, all right, Lord, who are you? Who do you want us to know? Because there's somebody sitting in here right now who is pretty mad at you and who thinks that you don't care about their life and you don't care about their circumstances because if you did, you wouldn't let that happen. There's somebody in here right now who used to feel like they knew you and now it's kind of dull and boring and it's just we go through Bible study and answer the questions and go to brunch and then go home and I still don't know who you are. You're not real to me. There's people in this room who, who don't understand how you could even possibly be accessible. How, why do you even care about me? I'm so non-impactful to this world. Why do you even care? And I felt like he needed us to know this. He says in Exodus 3, he says this. I'm going to read it. Hear this, okay? When you hear this, I want you to hear this um, like, um, like, uh, like he is speaking to you. Because he is speaking to you. 
This is what, this is what I feel like he wanted us to understand. Exodus 3, 13 through 15, it goes like this. This is Moses talking to God. Moses says, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your father who has sent me to you, and they ask, Well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, Hear this. You know what he said? He said this. I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. Guys, this is his name forever, and he is to be remembered throughout all the generations. He's talking to us. I am who I am. The better tabernacle reminds us this, that this is who God is. I am intentional. He's not a God of chaos and coincidence. So just put that away because he's not that God. He didn't just say, hey guys, you know the whole tent thing and the whole dwelling place? I want y'all just kind of figure it out and we're just gonna, that's cool. No, he's a God of intention and detail and order and there's a plan. I am your provider. He's talking to you. I am your provider. Regardless of how many golden calves you build, because guys, we are the wandering Israelites, okay? We just happen to be in Flomo and we, we, you know, our shoes are a little cuter maybe and we maybe have better hygiene and that's really it. We are them. We are wandering and we mess up. And we worship golden calves that make God just go, ah. But he still provides, doesn't he? He still rains down manna, even when we don't appreciate it, even when we don't deserve it. The third thing, I am accessible. I am accessible. Just this morning, I felt like there are people in here that feel like God is this big, scary daddy. Maybe you didn't have a good daddy. And so the whole daddy thing is a little awful. That's not who he is. He is nothing like earthly fathers. He is nothing like earthly men who sin and mess up. He is a God who is accessible and is calling you into his presence and saying, Sister, I get it, I get it, I get it. I know when you cry. I know when you're hurting. I know what you're walking in here faking. I know all of it. And he is accessible. Curtains torn. I am accessible. Fourthly, I am with you. I am with you. You know, um, we say it, and sometimes I don't think we actually take this in, but I want you to hear this right now. God doesn't dwell in churches. He dwells in the church. He doesn't dwell in this place just because it's a church. He dwells in this place because we are the church. Big C church. Big C church means the people who believe in Jesus as their savior and that's how we approach God. We are the church. He doesn't dwell in buildings. He doesn't dwell in tents. He dwells in the big C church, in your heart. If you know him as a savior, you carry him where you go. Starbucks, 
Target. I talk about Target a lot. We need Jesus there, right? But he is with us. You know, we read in here, it says he, that the Holy Spirit gives us this conscience. You know, the conscience, I heard this, this um, definition. Conscience is divinely given warning device that reacts to sin and produces accusations and guilt. It's a divinely given warning device that reacts to sin. It's not just, you know, the whole moral compass idea. It's not just chance. If it were chance, we'd all have different compasses. But he gives us that through the Holy Spirit. He gives us conviction about things that matter. He is with us. And the last is, I am your hope for the future. I am your hope for the future. Some of us have been in places or are in places or will be in places. Wait, I think I covered everybody. I think that's us. Where we feel hopeless, right? He is our hope. He is our hope. If our hope is in circumstances changing, you will be, you will be let down. If your hope is in people, even really cool, good people that you love, you will be let down. All, if your hope is in yourself and how smart and awesome you are, you will be let down probably within the next five minutes. So he is this. The great I am is this. He is the plan. He is the place. And he is the priest. To finish, I want to share. I'm going to confess something to you guys. See if this is your confession as well. As I was thinking about who God is. Who he is. I am who I am. I thought about who Chris is. Who I am. And this is what I wrote down. And unfortunately, it was really easy to write. And it could have gone on for pages. But I want you to hear this. And I want you to stop and think about who you are in light of who he is. Okay? So I am Chris. I am. I am broken and bruised. I am damaged and desperate. I am slow to learn. I am selfish. I am ignorant and indulgent. I am a blame shifter instead of a blame taker. Anybody? I am often prayerless, and I am prone to trust me. I am hopeless when hope is sitting at the throne for me. I am forgetful instead of focused on what he's done in the past. I am blind in the brightest light shining all around me. I'm seeking more word, more world, less word. I'm careless and chaotic. I'm a people pleaser, not a God pleaser. I'm a lost sheep who runs away from my shepherd. I'm untrustworthy, unreliable, unappreciative, and undeserving. But you know what I am? And I hope you hear this the right way. I am his. He loves me so much. All that stuff. And that's just the clean, good stuff. Like, I could have put some really bad stuff. But my mother-in-law's in the room and... I don't want to embarrass her. <laughs> but guys, I am his, and he loves me. He loves me so much that he did what I could never do for any of you or my family or my children. He gave his son to die for me for this disaster, for this mess. 
He tore the curtain from the top to the bottom. So I don't need a priest and I don't need rituals and I don't need rules. And even though it doesn't really make sense sometimes and sometimes it's so big and we're like, I don't get it. He says, it's okay. All you need to get is that I sent Jesus to die for you and that's it. And so are you his? Is the curtain torn? Do you access the Holy of Holies? Does, do you understand that you are invited in? I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you that we can be yours, that you have given us a way. And Lord, um, will you forgive us those times when we forget where we belong, that we belong in the Holy of Holies. We belong with you. Father, thank you for sitting down at the right hand of God the Father. We thank you that you sent your son there to sit there on our behalf to give our prayers to you. Lord, help us know you better. We want to know you better through the book of Hebrews. We thank you for your son in Jesus' name. Amen.